My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors at GCF North. Welcome to our 20th anniversary celebration. Let's have a little fun for a moment and recognize a few groups of people. Everyone stand, please, for a moment. Everyone stand. If you have been at GCF for less than six months, take a seat. Sorry. We do love you. Um, less than a year, take a seat. Okay, uh, less than three years, take a seat. Figure out when you came to GCF, have that in your mind. Um, less than five years, take a seat. Okay, um, less than 10 years, take a seat. Just lost a bunch there. Um, less than 13 years, going back 13 years. Just lost a bunch. Uh, less than 15 years, take a seat. Okay, less than 17 years, take a seat. I think I would sit down now if I could. Um, 18 years, less than 18 years. Okay, who do we have left? Okay, wow. Um, less than 19 years, take a seat. Oh, we just lost the lilies. <laughs> Some onions. Okay, so I think everyone who's left has been here 20 years. Is that accurate? Roughly 20 years. Let's give them a hand. Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay standing. 20 years. If you've been here for 20 years, uh, Kelly Lumberg, where's Kelly? Kelly has uh, gift cards for you. She's right there to the bookstore. So make sure to find Kelly. She's just sitting right there afterwards, and she'll give you a gift card. All right. Take a seat. Okay. Can I have all of the ministry team leaders please stand for a moment? If you lead a ministry team at GCF, please stand. Ministry team leaders. Don't be bashful. Okay. Let's thank them for their service. Next, uh, can I have all the discipleship group leaders? There's about 60. Please stand. Okay? Not all here this morning. Please stand. Okay? Very good. Okay? Um, next, can I have all of our deacons stand, our small group leaders? There's about 40 of you. Please stand, all of our deacons. Let's give them a hand. All right, next, um, all the GCF paid staff. If GCF pays you, please stand. <laughs> paid staff, okay? <laughs> all right, uh, a few more groups. All the elders, please stand. Elders, please stand. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right. Okay, I, I want to recognize at the end here two, two families. I think these are the only two families remaining from the original five families. So I'm going to have Mark and Kim and all their grown children please stand. Okay, six grown children. There's four of them. There's, are there the rest here somewhere? 
No. Okay. So what's amazing about this is the church began 20 years ago. You guys were all kids back then. And uh, 20 years later, all six of their grown children are members in good standing (laughs) at GCF. So thank you so much, Mark and Kim. And thank you, the kids. And last but not least, I'd like to have Bill and Judy Farley stand up. Where are they? Right over there. Very good. So, humanly speaking, GCF would not be here apart from Mark and Kim and Bill and Judy. So, thank you for 20 plus years ago agreeing to start this little church with five families. And like was mentioned earlier, the the church actually officially began in the fireside room about 75 yards that way with roughly 20 people, and here we are 20 years later. All right, I want to do one more thing. If you are from GCF Central, please make some noise. GCF Valley, please make some noise. All right, GCF North, please make some noise. Okay, everyone's a winner. I, I want to take a picture for posterity, so just indulge me for a moment. We'll see if this works. Um, I'm going to do the, the pano, because everyone smile. I, I know, everyone's watching me, though. I'm trying to keep it steady. Got to go slow. Hey, this, this is a lot of work. Almost there. Oh, it says slow down. Okay. Got it. All right. Okay. Uh, it, is, it is important to recognize and honor people who have served so lavishly here at GCF. But ultimately, we are here to celebrate God's faithfulness. And light of that, let's stand to honor the reading of God's word this morning. Amen. God is certainly good. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be reading the first eight verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is God's Word. The Apostle Paul said this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is God's word. 
Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you for uh, 20 years of faithfulness to GCF. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who suffered and died in our place. Thank you for sending the Spirit. We pray that the Spirit would come now and open our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that as the Word of God is preached, you would eternally change hearts and minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. GCF began with five families on April 15th, 2002, and a lot has changed since then. We started in, uh, with uh, one location. We now have three locations. We started with five families. We now have approximately, on average, 900 worshipers on a Sunday morning across three locations. We started with a few small groups. We now have 40. We started with a few discipleship groups. We now have close to 60 this fall. We started with one elder. We now have 12 elders. We started with a staff of one. We now have a staff of 16. Over the years, many things have changed. Our music has changed. Our clothing has changed. Our locations have changed. But amidst all the changes, one thing has remained the same. And what is that one thing that's remained the same? What is that one thing that has been the engine that has driven GCF for 20 years? That one thing is an intense commitment to keeping the gospel central. We believe that we exist to glorify God. And God is glorified most when the gospel is central. But what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? What does that mean exactly? Well, to get at that, let me start by describing the alternatives to gospel-centered churches. There are gospel-denying churches. I think here of LDS churches, Christian science churches, liberal churches that deny important things like the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and substitutionary atonement. There are gospel redefining churches, gospels that redefine the gospel as the good news of health, wealth, and prosperity, or the good news of social action. Then there are gospel-assuming churches. These churches are orthodox in their theology, but the gospel is rarely mentioned because the pastor thinks the gospel is just for non-Christians, not Christians. Instead of preaching the gospel, these pastors talk about practical advice for Christian living, five steps to a better marriage, three steps to financial freedom, ten steps for better communication. When Christ is mentioned, he's often a means to an end. Then there are gospel-embarrassed churches, churches that are embarrassed about things like a bloody cross, repentance, and the reality of hell. Then there are gospel-committed churches. These churches, thankfully, are fully committed to proclaiming the gospel. They believe all the key things that we believe, and they can def defend those things very articulately. 
but they also assume the gospel is just for non-Christians. Once non-Christians have heard the gospel, then we can move on to bigger and better things. We are thankful for gospel-committed churches, but that's not enough. Then there's finally gospel-centered churches. What in the world is a gospel-centered church? To help us answer that question, we're going to look at three subjects this morning. The heart of gospel centrality, the assumption of gospel centrality, and the specifics of gospel centrality. First is the heart of gospel centrality. What is the heart of gospel centrality? The gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Paul says in these glorious words, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, assuming that Christians often forget the gospel. The word gospel appears 133 times in the New Testament, and as many of you know, that word literally means good news or to proclaim good news. The word gospel is not a Christian word. It was a secular word. Kings would often send out heralds to proclaim the good news of victory over enemies. Paul carefully defines the gospel for us in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Those five words are the heart and soul of the Christian religion. Christ died for our sins. Now, it's not enough to think that Christ died for me. It's more accurate to say that Christ died instead of me, which implies that all of us deserve to die on the cross because all of us break God's law every day in thought, word, and deed. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, motivated by love, died instead of us in our place taking all of the wrath and punishment that we justly deserve for our sin. Theologians call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. When I was a freshman in college, I was a business major for a couple of months until I took business math. But as a business major, I had to take Econ 101. And this was the worst taught class I'd ever taken in my life. Half the time, I was totally confused as to what the professor was saying, so was the rest of the class. It wasn't just me. We were all lost and confused. 
in lectures, I just tried to hang on for dear life, not fall asleep, learn a few things. I miserably bombed the midterm. I think it was like a D minus, maybe even an F. But so did the rest of the class. There was a massive curve. <laughs> and as we began to prepare for finals, I knew I wasn't going to make it. So I called my dad. Dad, I'm about to fail. Microeconomics, Econ 101. Can I please drop this class? No. <laughs> they wanted me to teach me a lesson in perseverance. So final rolls around. It was one of those tests where it's multiple choice, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I haven't chosen C in a while. It's been a lot of A's, a lot of B's. I'm making designs with my answers. Time's up, the test is halfway done, and I begin to walk forward with my exam, turn it into the proctor of the exam. Now imagine as I'm walking forward, the smartest kid in the class, who has 100% in the class, sees me walking forward, he has his test in, in his hand, I have my test in my hand, he says, Dave, stop, let's trade tests. Then he takes my test, erases my name, writes his name on it, gives me his test, erases his name, and writes my name on it. And then he takes them both back, turns them both in, and my name's on the test that's going to get 100%. We get the test results later, and sure enough, Dave Farley aced microeconomics, 100%. And the smartest kid in the class failed miserably because he had my test. That's the gospel. All of us are going to fail the test at final judgment miserably. Our good works are not enough. No matter how hard you try, you will never, ever, ever ace that exam and to get into heaven, you have to ace that exam. But God, motivated by love, sent his son to earth to earn for you and I a perfect record of law-keeping. And when you trust in Jesus and repent of your sins, his perfect record is given to you, and he takes, his, he takes your record and credits it to his own account. Martin Luther called this the great gospel exchange. Jesus Christ exchanges with us guilt for righteousness. An old Puritan describes the great gospel exchange this way. At the cross, Christ was cast off that we might be brought in. Christ was made God's enemy that we might be made God's friend. Christ experienced hell's worst so that we might experience heaven's best. Christ was stripped so that we could be clothed. Christ was wounded so that we could be healed. Christ was tormented so that we could be comforted. Christ was shamed so that we could be glorified. Christ wept great tears so that someday all your tears would be wiped away. Christ was abandoned so that we could be embraced Christ wore a crown of thorns so that we could wear a crown of glory. Christ died in shame so that we could live forever 
and glory. As a result of the cross, Satan was declawed. Hell's gates were closed, heaven's portal was open, and all of our sins were drowned in an ocean of reconciling blood. That's the gospel. Because Jesus suffered and died in our place and then rose from the grave, there is nothing more for us to do but believe. That means that Christianity is not a faith plus religion. Many of us think that we are saved by faith plus Bible study habits, or faith plus our prayer life, or faith plus going to church, or faith plus avoiding all those evil sins. No, we are saved by faith alone. Christ has done everything. Every other religion is spelt with two letters. D-O. Do. Do this. Go to this place. Pray this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Do this, and you'll be accepted. Christianity is spelt with four letters. D-O-N-E. Done. Which means there is nothing more for you to do. Period. End of story. It's that scandalous. It's that free. We believe. When we believe, Christ exchanges his perfection for our guilt. In light of this, one author writes, in his final moments on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Not, I got it started, now you take over. Which is how a lot of us live, isn't it? Christians often must repent of both their bad deeds and their good deeds. That is, good deeds done to earn God's favor. When we think that our good deeds earn God's favor, we're saying to Jesus, thanks for all you did, but it wasn't quite enough. Let me help you out a little bit with my good deeds. That's incredibly offensive to the triune God. This all raises the question, have you personally appropriated the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking do you understand these facts? Or do you believe these facts? Hell will be full of people who understand the gospel and believe the gospel. That's not enough. You must personally repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And that looks like saying, Jesus, I will go and I will do whatever you tell me to do. That is saving faith. We are saved by faith alone plus nothing, but if faith is real, it will lead to a transformed life. So have you personally made a decision to turn away from your sins and say to Jesus, Jesus, I will go wherever you tell me to go, no matter how costly and painful it is. 
That's what it means in the Bible to be a Christian. Some of you are thinking, I understand the gospel, but what is gospel centrality? This brings us to the next point. First, the heart of the gospel, the heart of gospel centrality, I should say. Second, the assumption of gospel centrality. What do gospel-centered churches assume? They assume that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. Said another way, gospel-centered churches assume that Christians should never, ever, ever move on from the gospel. Paul made this assumption constantly. For instance, back to our text, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, Paul constantly reminds Christians of the gospel. Again, he says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, a group of Christians, and Paul's saying, I need to remind you, once again, of what Christ has done for you. 2 Timothy 2, 7-9, Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. But Paul, he's a pastor. Paul still says to Timothy, Timothy, you must remember Jesus Christ. Don't forget. The gospel is for you too, Pastor Timothy. Paul constantly preaches the gospel to Christians. Romans 1, 13 to 15 Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you, Christians, also who are in Rome. Paul's preaching the gospel to Christians. Why? Because Christians need the gospel too. Paul constantly taught gospel-centered sanctification. Titus 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, for the grace of God, that is the gospel, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. For Paul, it was the gospel that drove all holiness in the Christian life. Paul's only boast was in the gospel. Galatians 6.14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's only boast was the gospel. Now this morning, can we say that? Our only boast is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul only wanted to know one thing, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.2. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, the gospel was not just the freshman accounting class. It was the entire degree program. 
The gospel is not just the diving board, it was the entire pool. Not just the door into the mansion, it was the entire mansion. For Paul, one is saved by believing the gospel, and, and, and one is also conformed into Christ's image by applying the gospel to every single area of our lives. As a Christian, you will never ever reach a stage in your maturity when you and I can move away from or move on from applying the gospel to our lives. Furthermore, you will never ex exhaust the depths of the gospel. Now, now, what I'm talking about here, I'm not necessarily talking about always gaining more knowledge, although knowledge is really important. We need to know about concepts like redemption, propitiation, justification, reconciliation, etc., etc. But what I mean here is that there's things that we know intellectually about the gospel. But then God the Spirit allows us to experience those truths, and they dramatically and eternally alter us. So our prayer should constantly be, God, help me understand and apply and, more importantly, experience glorious gospel realities. The reason why our Christian lives are often so lackluster is because we're no longer amazed by God's grace. We forgot who we were before conversion. And we've forgotten what God has done for us in the cross. I'm not sure what your issues are, but we all need more power to change, don't we? We don't need more self-help programs we don't need more techniques. We don't need more psychology. We don't need to understand what our anagram number is. We need the power of God, and that power is released in our lives when the gospel is central in our lives. And when that happens, God is honored and glorified, which is why we're still alive. Because God wants to receive honor and glory through us. We need the power of God. Well, what does it specifically look like to apply the gospel to every area of our lives? And this brings us to the third and final point. So the heart of gospel centrality, the assumption of gospel centrality, and third is the specifics of gospel centrality. The longer I'm a pastor, and the more I try to follow Christ imperfectly, the more I'm aware of the fact that all of my sanctification issues are rooted in the fact that I'm not carefully applying the gospel to that particular area of my life where I'm struggling. Let me give some examples. What about depression? Now, depression can be complicated. It can have many causes. I think we all understand that. But often, depression is not a chemical imbalance that requires a pill. Depression is often rooted in the fact that there's certain things that you and I want that we can't have. When we can't have them, we get discouraged or depressed. What types of things? Respect from peers the right body, the next promotion, more income, better behaved kids. I don't know what the issue is. 
But often, when we can't have those things, we get depressed. But in the gospel, we learn that we have access to the one thing that is the greatest cause of joy, and that is relationship with the triune God. How about anxiety? And again, anxiety can be complicated. There are many causes of anxiety, but our anxiety is often rooted in idolatry, just like the first issue. Anxiety is often the result of us craving an idol. We really, really want something. We want it so bad that we are terrified of losing it. And again, that could be respect, money, something else. And we're just terrified of losing those things. In the gospel, we learn that God has given us his own son. If we have his son, we have everything we need. We can lose everything in this life and be content. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do you believe that this morning? How about giving? 2 Corinthians 8, 7-9, Paul says, to the Corinthian church, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And he's talking here about giving in the context. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is Paul doing? Paul is saying the reason you should give your money away so generously and freely is because God has given you his son. That's the chief motive for giving. And again, if you have a son, you have everything you need, money loses its grip on you, and you'll give your money away freely, which many of you at GCF do well. How about marriage? In Ephesians 5, we learn that the paradigm for marriage is the gospel. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For Paul, if you wanted a successful, joyful, God-honoring marriage, the paradigm is the gospel. In most marriages, this is the issue. Husbands are not taking up their crosses daily and loving and serving their wives. And some wives have a hard time following their husbands. But in Paul's framework, the gospel is the paradigm for marriage. How about parenting? The cross shows us in graphic detail, what our kids' sin deserves. When your kid throws a fit, it's not cute. It deserves crucifixion. That's what the gospel tells us. At the same time, the cross also shows God's extravagant affection for us. So parents, when it comes to parenting, you must discipline your kids because if you don't, sin is going to destroy their lives and lead to crucifixion ultimately. 
At the same time, that discipline must be couched in affection because in the gospel, God has been incredibly affectionate with us. How about joy and humor? Because of the gospel, you and I can freely and joyfully laugh at ourselves. We have to take ourselves way too seriously. When we are secure in God's acceptance of us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't matter if people laugh at you. They only know the half of it. God knows everything, and he still loves you and accepts you. If God loves you and accepts you, then laugh at yourself. We all do stupid things that are worthy of laughter. We can't laugh at ourselves because many of us are really insecure. And that's a gospel issue. How about relating to parents? Some of you are still trying to meet your parents' expectations. And this burden is hard to live with. But because of Jesus Christ, God is now your heavenly Father. He loves you and He accepts you. This means that we don't have to be overly dependent on our parents' approval, nor hostile when they disapprove. God the Father loves you and accepts you. How about sexual purity? Our culture views sexuality as an appetite to be quenched. That's it. Religious people, on the other hand, see sex as dirty. But Christian sexuality reflects the self-giving attitude of Jesus Christ. Husbands and wives are called to give themselves to each other with tenderness and affection. Because God has been affectionate toward us. We treat others the way that we think God has treated us. The gospel is incredibly good news for every sanctification issue we face. And let's face it, most of our issues are sanctification issues. Well, what is the engine that has driven GCF for 20 years. A passion for gospel centrality motivated by the glory of God. Again, when the gospel is central, when we see clearly the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is glorified because on the plane of human history, the cross is the place where God receives the most glory because that's the place where God displays his attributes for the whole world to see. His righteousness, his wrath, his justice, plus his love, his mercy, and his grace. We must keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church driven by any other engine will eventually crash and burn. With that in mind, let me close with a few application ideas. You and I must never, ever move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Describing an Anabaptist sect, one famous historian said this, the first generation believed the gospel, the second generation assumed the gospel, and the third generation lost the gospel. And my friends, that can happen so easily. America is littered with churches that begin on good, a good foundation that are now preaching non-gospels. We must be vigilant about never moving on from the gospel. One scholar says this, we must never move on from the gospel but only into a more profound understanding of the gospel. In 50 years, our small groups may be different. Our discipleship groups may look different. Our music is probably going to be different. Probably have a different staff, different locations, and all that's okay as long as the gospel is still the engine that drives GCF. You, the members of GCF, have an obligation. You, yes, you, all the members, to ensure that the elders of GCF are keeping the gospel central. If they're not, talk to them. We must never move on from the gospel. In addition, we must never lose our passion for the gospel. In other words, your passion for reformed theology, elder governance, the gifts of the Spirit, politics, cultural relevance, social justice, musical preferences, educational options for your kids, those things must never, ever, ever exceed your passion for the gospel. When that happens, the church is about to crash and burn. Which raises the question, what are you currently most passionate about? It's a convicting question, isn't it? Paul's greatest passion was to see the gospel proclaimed in all the earth. His passion was to see God honored and glorified as the cross of Christ was lifted up. Is that your greatest passion? Is it my greatest passion? If not, our affections are disordered. That must be our greatest passion. Maybe your greatest passion is making more money, being physically fit, climbing the ladder, having perfect kids. If your greatest passion is not to see the glory of God spread across all the earth through the gospel being proclaimed, you and I must repent and ask God to give us appropriate passions. We must never move on from the gospel. We must never lose our passion for the gospel. Well, what is going to help us to that end? A fierce commitment to GCF's mission. And it goes like this. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered evangelism, gospel-centered discipleship, and gospel-centered community. Let's pray.
Father, we do confess that it is easy for us to move on to other things. It's easy for us to have more passion for other things. Father, we pray that this church would maintain a fierce passion for gospel centrality. Two, three, four, five, six, seven generations from now. Lord, thank you for two decades of faithfulness to us. Thank you for helping us keep the main thing the main thing. Lord, continue to help us to that end.